All right, so we're back with episode five, talking Band of Brothers again with Sayer Payne. Sayer, thanks for being here, man. Of course, we have. I'll tell you what, it's a good day for this because we're doing we're doing back to back recordings today. But we've had like I think probably six inches of rain so far within twenty four hours. It's unreal. So anyway, I'm just rainy day, watching some Band of Brothers episodes and talking about it. So no way to start it out with a boring note talking about the weather so we'll try to well, no i'm just saying no complaints I, it's not boring at all to me it's exciting this is yeah talking about the weather other side i'm from the midwest it's how you start every conversation so this is halfway point this is episode five of ten or i guess when we're done with this one we'll be at the halfway point um this one's called crossroads and I'm excited to hear your thoughts on a lot of you, Sarah, because you mentioned the other day that this is maybe your favorite episode, and I can see why. There's a lot here. Um, I'm interested to see where it takes us. But before we get started, I did want to say uh, thank you to Nikki, who is uh, listening in from Denmark, reached out on TikTok a couple of days ago to correct some things we'd said here in the show. Um, what he called out was Blythe who in, what was it, episode three or three, I think, was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's what the show says. But Nikki, uh, let me know that that was an error. There's like mm-hmm. very, very few. When you think about how incredibly detailed and how well-researched this entire series is, to hear, you, you take it for granted, I guess. I take it for granted. They got so much right that there's these little things like Blythe didn't die. There was even debate, I guess, whether he got shot in the neck or in the shoulder. But either oh, way, really? he, well, he didn't. When did he die then? Oh, oh, he died a while at some later. point, like later, yeah. later, like well later. I think Nikki said he even served in uh, in Korea. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like it wasn't a fatal wound. That's what oh, I mean. yeah, yeah, very interesting. That is an interesting one to miss. And so, hey, that goes back to reliance upon what we were told. I mean, twenty years ago. Something came out. I just feel like you trusted it, the powers that be. And now it's like, I think that's more norm now. Like if something were to come out now, I'm probably going to be checking almost everything, every event line. Is that really what happened? Um, But back then, especially then, it's like gospel, especially with all the firsthand accounts. So to think that they portrayed such a sad scene, I don't know how they screw that up. What Nick had mentioned, and and it's worth diving into a little bit more here, but it was along the lines of when a soldier gets wounded and they get sent back, it's really easy to lose touch um, today even, but imagine in world war two when somebody gets wounded that early on and you're still fighting on through Europe, um, still losing people left and right. Mm-hmm. And it sounds more like they just kind of lost track of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those firsthand accounts of what happened to this guy, people were just, you know, he got shot in the neck, he died. Like that's just, how, how, it wouldn't you know, take very much. Right. For that to come um, back, and then that's the thing. Yeah, and I mean, we we did have that happen to someone that we were with. Really, that got injured. And they just you're moving forward, right? And they had the numbers of casualties that were unreal compared to us. Ours are very singular. Um, mm. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Uh, no internet, no internet, of course. <laughs> Phones are still pretty new back then. Not to, I mean, I'm going to dive off on a tangent here, but even tracking casualties is a nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. You, you is an issue when you look at specifically a big operation like D-Day, when people are lost, when right. they get moved back to, you have to assume that the wounded soldier makes it to an aid station and that it's a clean line from right. one aid station to the hospital, to a transport ship to England, back to the United States, but it's not. What if one of those transport ships gets sunk? What if one of those aid stations gets overrun? Right. Anywhere along those lines, this could happen to where the soldier, was he killed? Was he wounded? What happened? It's so, so easy to lose track of one person in a conflict like this. Um, it's not like there was some massive um, centralized digital database to update. Oh, Preston was wounded. Let's track him on his progress back to Walter Reed or something. So this, it was an interesting one for me. I'm glad Nikki brought it up because it... Um, so many of those don't have names. Right. You don't know about Well, them. thank goodness that someone told the, that Stephen Ambrose wrote the book about Band of Brothers. Because, I mean, I just don't know how we would have known this story. I mean, it's through sort of this mainstream pop culture. 
we have movies like Patton that happen and um, The Longest Day and things like that. But those were all like from the 70s. Like we were growing up, you know, those are those are pretty old movies, but we weren't watching those type of movies um, coming up. So we're very fortunate they tell the stories. Uh, like I think I've said it earlier, I, I'm sure that there's the 82nd jumped into Normandy, right? They, they did a lot of cool things. I don't know anything really. Much, I don't know much about the 82nd because you know what? There wasn't a band of brothers. I know a lot about the 101st. And I'm just glad again that Stephen Ambrose captured their stories before it was too late. So Max, you're going to kind of circle back around to some of that, but leave you hanging for now. The episode Crossroads to me shows kind of the, the chaotic life of an officer at that time. Mm-hmm. The roles of officers in the military have changed a lot. And in a lot of ways, they've stayed the same. And what stood out to me was pretty early on, um, kind of setting the tone for the episode, was Winters made it back to the regimental CP, I think it was. And he just walks in there. And from every direction, it's something, right? It's, we need this report. We need this, this award written up. We need you to review this intel. We need this op plan. Like, and he just stops fully responding. If you remember, he just says, sir, sir, sir. And you can just see it piling on. I can, I can feel that. That's, that's tough. Yeah. It's hard to say no. Nobody ever wants to say no. And so that's life probably though in general, but it's especially so in the military. Um, probably because of the team too. Like who else is going to do it? Who else is going to do it? Um, but you're, yeah, you, there's just a lot of hats you got to wear and the paperwork really sucks. And you're still doing, by the way, like when we were deployed, you're still doing evaluation reports, NCOERs. It's like, who cares? And you're talking about things that happened six months ago at a rifle range or whatever, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Who cares when you're in Kandahar doing shit? And then, and I actually feel bad looking back. Um, like, I feel like my guys could have gotten way more awards. They're, they were way more deserving of awards, more awards, more awards. And I just, you know, some got it. Yeah. But I feel like we could have done, I could have done more. That's my job. It's not their job. They don't write their own rewards. I do, but it goes with the time thing and nobody else will do it either. And it, it, it's a lot of pressure to do the, the paperwork part, but then still be the, uh, you know, in the trenches at the same time, sort of, because you're doing both because you're an officer. So you, you jumped into the point I was looking forward to making here. Um, I do think for what it's worth, this is the point where Winters transitions. You see him as this tactician. And he never really changes, right? Um, at this point, Captain Winters. So he, when we first saw him as a platoon leader, it was all about tactics. There's still paperwork and all the admin stuff to do at that level, but they really didn't show it. It seems like it's right here when he's the, co- the commander of Easy Company and it's just piling on in every direction it's showing that he kind of has to make that transition back from the tactician a little bit. Um, But to your point on paperwork, what I was thinking of when he was writing up the awards and they're giving him a hard time, right? Saying this doesn't have to be perfect. Those awards. And I agree in the moment, it seems like nothing, right? Just a little army achievement medal or an ARCOM even it's cool. It's something that's how people get their awards is because somebody like, Captain Winters at this point takes his time to sit down and write it up. How many people forgot to do that or just got oh, lazy or whatever? That's how families know what their kids did. That's how kids find out what their, that's what grandkids brag about. You know how many people have said like my grandfather has a bronze star and they have a citation and they're so proud of it. And it's awesome. They should be, but it's this boring. It is boring. There's like no, no sugar coat in it this boring piece of in the midst of combat, having to step back and write up an evaluation. Dude, those mean so much. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, um, well, I mean, that is leadership, of course, taking the time to do it. Um, but even I, like, I'm even wondering, like he, if he had more time to write it up, think they probably did even more things that weren't able to be captured into those two pages. I think is also what I'm, I think trying to say is he did get it down. He did get it on paper. They did get their awards. But I think at the other time, I think if he just had a few more days to actually compile it, compose himself, 
put it together and there's probably way more people involved and way more events that actually happened and it's all uh valorous it's all heroic but at the same time they feel like they're doing their job so i just i got to do the two pay you know i got to get um nixon's trying to tell them to shorten it up but in reality we should be expanding it um and that's that's my because of what you were saying that is the memory and as legacies but at the same time you're fighting a friggin' war and so um that's the mission yeah it's it gets into the the question of when you see these valor awards the ones that we have today are the ones that were documented this is going to be kind of a, a deep we don't have to go too far down this rabbit hole but not every valorous act was documented oh. sometimes because nobody survived maybe what the platoon leader did nobody else saw or the three or four people that did see were killed um maybe the people that saw it didn't know what the next step was they didn't know if they should bring something up they don't know what that process looks like um it's easier in a sense if you know a company commander sees it he can write it up and say that's an award i'm gonna write it Mm -hmm. what about if it's a brand new replacement and he sees a squad leader do something and he's the only one that survives that assault is that normal do you say anything it's not wrong i'm not knocking that guy it's just there's it you can mess with your head a little bit what percentage of these valorous acts say in world war ii are actually documented versus uh, who knows and again because yeah the officer has to ride it and if the pl doesn't see it and he's not there like even if the pl is there and doesn't quite see things or the co it's like it just then it doesn't exist to your point like let's say the private is a sole survivor whole squad is dead all things could have happened in that moment though lots of enemy killed but the private is i'm going to say quote just the private he's going to get fit into a different squad so it's not like he has the poll to say, hey, sir, you need to sit down, listen to my story, I got to tell you. Um, and then expl- I, I don't know if there's time for that. And I don't know the whole rank and structure of it, the communication breakdown. And then the fact that the guy's probably wide eyed hard <laughs> um, with what happened anyway. Um, so who that number has, I believe, has got to be much higher than what is on paper. Well, think about even during this episode when they say the third battalion got hit and nearly overrun. Mm-hmm. How many, you know, how many award citations might have been sitting in that battalion CP when it was overrun or nearly overrun? Or how about the next episode or the end of this one gets into the Battle of the Bulge? There were American positions just straight overrun, right. command posts overrun. Right. How many award citations were, were sitting in that command post when it was overrun or gone? True. And how many people know, wait a minute, what I wrote up for you know, private Smith was in that. No. So it's a, it's an endless topic there. But. Or Yeah. Yeah. It is endless heroic acts of going into the foxholes and, and getting shelled and then getting everyone getting blown to smithereens. I mean, you know, these events happened in uh, four minutes, three minutes. That's it. Um, but they still happened, but then they get blown completely gone. I mean, it's just, who knows? By the way, 3rd Battalion, that was Pee Wee. Oh, really? Yep. So your buddy there in Dayton, right? Yeah. It's awesome. 100 years old. So... I'm not buddy, but... Yeah. Let's move into, uh, into the attack. So it's kind of the centerpiece of this entire episode is this attack that happens pretty quick. I mean, there's the setup of a soldier gets shot and wounded at these crossroads. They send out a patrol at night to... I guess, hit them back. It's not super clear what their objective is there at night. It, yeah. It, I, I would have to frame it as just, it's still hard to do. I don't know if it was a recon that turned into a movement to contact or was it already a movement to contact? Um, it is very hard to tell about what type of trouble they were looking at getting into because they really didn't have that many, in my opinion, they didn't really have a lot of people to, to start, um, poking towards a machine gun and at least how it's laid out in the episode they're in a tough spot i mean unless that's just a small unless that's just a machine gun team or a squad up there they're going to be in a tough spot pretty quickly and that's what happens they they kind of show this i think they it's kind of hard to see if you just watch it through the first time but 
The challenge they run into when the sun comes up is they're in the low ground with a road on a couple different sides. They're, if you think of um, an elevated roadway and uh, you know a T or an intersection, four-way intersection, and they're in one of the corners that is depressed, they're low. So their concern is as soon as the Germans figure out how few of them there are, they can come around the side and wipe them out. Mm -hmm. After the fact, we learned that there's more than enough Germans there to have done that, which leads winters by the time the sun comes up to order a charge. Fixed bayonets was the order that went out, which I don't care how much combat you've been in. I feel like when you're given that order for a reason, not just like to pump up the guys, that's got to make your heart just jump up in your throat, right? Like, here we go. I could not, yeah, that's something that'd be very hard to imagine for one. Um, Cause you, everybody knows what it means. And then, uh, well, you know, what's funny is I have a friend, he was a Vietnam platoon leader. He is all about the bayonet. He, they were regular issued. He's all about that intimidation of what the bayonet is, um, the aggressiveness that what a bayonet is, and um, the language, it's, the tone that sets. Um, and he was kind of shocked because ours are kind of all packed away. Yeah. He did not like to hear that ours are all packed away um, because back in his day, they were not. I don't know, man. That's a tough one to... And anyways, they fix bayonets, they charge winters in what had to have seemed like a lifetime makes it further across this field than just about anybody else before by tens of meters, if not more mm-hmm. comes up over this little, um, depression opens fire in the field, shoots a kid first. Would you say that's a kid, young soldier, 17, 18. I think he was probably, I think he was like 15 or something. Okay. If I remember. So the they first person in the book, I don't think he was 17. I do think he's little, not 12 or anything, but yeah. you know, like a freshman or something. And it just kicks off, right? So they, that's when they find out they ran into, eventually find out it was two companies of SS. And just for well, kind of. The- I want to back it up real quick. I mean, it's really, I think the most important thing, it's how the episode starts. Good leaders lead, lead from the front. The, uh, the motto of the school infantry is follow me. Winters embodies all of these things. Like every single time he embodies it. And um, I mean, that's how you get people to follow you. you. You know, if you're in the back pushing them towards machine guns, it's a different scenario than when you're right up there with them. And I almost feel like that pause wasn't intended. I think. I think you're right. Yeah, I think. It would have been, well, he probably ran too early. He did, the smoke is a good signal. I think he, he probably should have waited a couple seconds for it to pop. Um, but his, what was his priority and prerogative? It was follow me. A couple times, right? That's how they got out of this crossroads too. As right. soon as they found out where the position was, he went up ahead. He said in the positions, he looked, um, Yeah. Do you remember when they landed at D-Day and when he, you know, he was alone with the other, that private from the other company or whatever, they find each other and he says, stay here, let me go look. And he goes, look, and it's machine gun. Oh, I got to go back. It is. Same stuff. That's a good point. Well, they, they, they cross over this berm and the rest of the company, it's, it's not the entire company at this point. It's a platoon at most, I think, um, come up over the berm and they, they run into what is two companies of SS. So you're talking about a company strength being about a hundred. That's usually just a ballpark number you can throw out there. Easy company is definitely at less than a hundred, um, in terms of strength at this point, they're probably coming up against a couple hundred German soldiers. So outnumbered three, four, five to one, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's SS. So to talk about the kind of historical side of this. I'm going to mispronounce this, but SS stands for Stutzstaffel. I can never say that. But um, the SS was a paramilitary organization within the German military and they, or within 
the German country within the Nazi party, they had a paramilitary organization, which was the Waffen-SS. I also mispronounce all the time. There were about 900,000 in that organization. And it did follow kind of the racial purity more than you would see in the rest of the German military. And in turn, all of that rambling to get to this, they tended to be better equipped. Hmm. It wasn't, you couldn't necessarily say 10 times out of 10, they were better trained, but they tended to be better equipped. They tended to get the newer, more um, advanced equipment more often uh, and faster than the rest of the unit. So running into an SS company um, was tough. They were warriors. They were running into a serious unit here. Um, I want to say a pretty decent fight breaks out, but it seems like it happens pretty fast. The whole thing is kind of confusing, remember? Like the mission with the amount of people he had. It's real interesting, the decision to initiate contact. Um, I don't know what tactics were back then. Now, at least when, you know, the old, which, you know, we were kind of came up Cold War manual. I'm sure they have different ones now. It was three to one. We were supposed to have a three to one numbers advantage. And that, in, that changes. That's just infantrymen. It changes when there's machine guns. I don't even know what the ratio is there, but it's not three to one. It's more than that. Um, so they were like, it's just the guts. Oh, and then the bayonet charge. That's violence of action. This episode is violence of action. And some FO action. I can't pass this up. This is like the only time in Band of Brothers you see somebody get on the radio, call in coordinates, call in a mission set, and boom, the artillery starts coming in. So finally. But then um, met with German artillery, and that's kind of what ends up ending the fight, right? Right, right. And maybe, hey, by the way, that's, you know, that's going to change your ratio too, knowing what type of indirect you might have at your, you know, that's available other assets, mortars, things like that. Surprise is a big one too, by the way. So, I mean, there are various factors in the sort of strategy chess game where there are no uh, direct answers. Uh, You got to be creative. You got to be decisive and you got to have violence of action and you got to keep moving forward. This seems like one of those fights that could have turned the other direction pretty quickly. Um, I think so. Honestly, the whole thing is, um, but then, but they did win though, right? And they caught them on their heels. And that's important too. Uh, it did work. And it is, it, it's demonstrable evidence of violence of action. I don't think there's a name for this battle. I tried looking it up. This is one of the kind of, to, to me, it's, I don't know. It's in every conflict, right? Like this was just a fight mm-hmm. called a movement to contact fight. And, and I feel like in, in Vietnam on it's standard, we know about it. You know, yeah, if somebody yeah. gets in a fight in Baghdad, it's not a battle. It's just a gunfight on a Tuesday, Vietnam, because of the movement to contact style missions, I think um, you did have set piece battles. You did have some larger operations, but you also just had a ton of fights and all of those fights can't have their own unique name and, and history book written about them. This, as big as it was, I think it's just a fight. Yeah. A tick, if that makes tick, sense. Tick. Troops in contact. Yeah. Um, maybe that's why it stands out as being unique then. Because uh, that's an interesting observation. Because that is the norm. Just picking fights back and forth. Nowadays. I mean, there's, there's major operations. There's major troop movements. But between those, it's not as though everybody just stopped and said, you go ahead and reset. We'll come see you for the Battle of the Bulge. Well, right. And uh, really, what's it called? What do we call it? It's patrolling. And that's really what they learned in Vietnam. Patrolling, which then you you do the patrol to then execute the battle drill, whatever that may be. That's what gets you into the fight. When they did these conventional things, just being there is a fight, right? It's almost planned. They're planning for you. They're sunk in. You know, they're dug in. You're advancing on their lines of people. So it's it's way more like the Redcoats versus the colonists, in a sense, or line up organized warfare than 
what we had or what the Viet, even though there was, there was plenty of conventional fighting in Vietnam though, by the way, plenty of that. I guess what I'm getting at with that is one of the challenges in military history down to the family level of wanting to say, I think the guy's name was Dukeman that was killed here. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you, you hear kids today, our age, younger or, or older than us talking about their family um, and saying things like my grandfather died during the Tet Offensive or my right. um, great grandfather was killed at Chosen Reservoir. And you can put these names to these places and you can go look up those battles and read about it. And maybe he didn't have a diary that you can go back and look at, but you can get a pretty good picture of what was happening at that time. But for, for, for the soldier here, I think, again, I think Dukeman was his name. His, everything, it would just say France, right? Just, well, maybe a town nearby that um, may or may not be labeled correctly. So it, it, and how many are buried there too? You know, it's like, sure. I mean, there's, there's plenty of that. Plenty of that. Well, and then you think of D-Day and all the stuff there. I, mean, well, I guess you associate with D-Day though, right? That's, that's your point. You associate yep. it with D-Day. June 6th, 7th, I think all that, maybe even for a couple of days after you would say on yeah. around D-Day. I see, I, I see your point. I see your point. They're in this purgatory right now. I think that's a challenge with, when I get into some of these stories, specifically Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, you want to tell a story about somebody, but how do you tell the story when they hit an IED on January 3rd, 2009? Hmm. I think it's about the chess pieces and who's doing what. What's the purpose? Um, because, you know, if, if that's in 0405 Fallujah, there's a Fallujah story about dropping leaflets and right. saying, hey, no civilians. We're not doing the insurgent guerrilla warfare stuff. We're going conventional on your asses. And if you want to stay and fight, bring it. That was Fallujah. Um, so there's context with that. There's, I think there's context if it's when those EFPs, I remember reading, I remember reading about the EFPs at some point um, in a Time magazine in the summer when I was home from college, reading about, they had this in-depth article about the EFP from Iran and the molten copper. And so it could have been that, because that's, a, I think that's its own and that's the region of the solder city type stuff going on and then Iranian influence. So it's big picture context. It's why the units are there. What is the point of the mission? Because the last thing anybody, I mean, the last thing that the biggest sin of any of these sort of KIAs would be arbitrariness. Yeah, and that's a good point. I appreciate you saying that. It's not the arbitrary nature of it. It's the complicated piece of um, there's not, take the Band of Brothers series out, probably nothing written about the crossroads, right? It doesn't stand out in anybody's history books. It's just, and honestly, if one American is killed in a fight in the middle of World War II, that's that's hardly registering in the, you know what I mean? Um, Well, Think about ours. We had these big gun battles, like NATO type battles, with every single asset possible. There's pockets of that happening throughout deployment. A big push, other little sort of intentional battles uh, throughout where we were. But then there were lots of times we're just like delivering humanitarian aid stuff to like local villages, then, like in between. And it's like IED laden stuff. So I think it'd be like, yeah. Um, you go through all these different battles and stuff where you're really getting after the Taliban, but then the, you know there are people stepping on IEDs just on a Tuesday walking to get the rice, yeah, just to try to help establish rapport with the locals. And um, nobody's even there. There are no bad guys because they planted it uh, months ago or something or weeks ago. So um, it's like this that in between part of it, but. Again, I think that what's the whole point of it, right? For us, it would have been the counterinsurgency piece, you know. For all of these, there are reasons. It's not just about doing a little battalion refit, uh, airing back and forth, and you know, and get and dying during that. How did you, you? How did your battalion get a foothold to where you where you were? I mean, it's it's all a part of that campaign that you're on. That's fair. 
well, let's pull it back here into the episode. Um, after this fight, as they're kind of cleaning up after the fight, um, Winters is approached by Colonel Sink, the brigade commander. And he asks if Winters will take over as battalion XO. So that's battalion executive officer, second in command of a battalion, uh, four companies this time, I believe, right? Four infantry companies. Um, but it's not just second in command. He hints that the battalion commander might need a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. So it's second in command, ready to uh, maybe do a little bit more than that. So I look at some timelines a little bit. This was in October of 1944. Mm-hmm. It was he jumped into Normandy as a lieutenant. Yeah, that'd be, that would make sense. So that means in four months, he went from a platoon leader to a battalion XO. Three months of company command. Wow. Yeah, but those three months were worth, what, three years? Compared <laughs> to someone else who's been a company commander in garrison. Um, it's, well, I think Lipton became first sergeant at this time, too. Probably started as a private in Tacoa. Now he's a company first sergeant. Um, it's the advance of war. And, yeah, I guess, so my takeaway is not the, uh, going, the rapidness of his rise. Um, as much as it is the disappointment because of him leaving easy company mm-hmm. well not just that but being an exo too of all jobs we were ta- we were talking about paperwork earlier that was as a commander and it was already at the end of the day though he just what is he typing about commanding and leading from the front a freaking bayonet charge against the ss that's what his job was and then the exo's job is to supply people with like fuel and bullets and food and you uh, hang out with battalion, which is staff, which is intense. And it's not with quote the guys. Yeah. And um, that's, that's the crappy part, I think for him. See, I'm a little bit torn on this. We were talking recently about battlefield commissions. So today in the U.S. military, there's a very deliberate path to commission as an officer. Whether you're in, enlisted, or you're coming in for the first time, ROTC, West Point, officer candidate school, or direct commission. But like, there's a very, very set path. You can't just pick somebody out of your ranks and say, he would make a good officer. That used to be a thing. In World War II, that was happening. If somebody showed, well, by the end of we won't get too far ahead, but there's one of these characters will receive a direct commission, will receive a battlefield commission. Mm-hmm. Um, but it happened the same with promotions. Today, there is not a scenario where a lieutenant, six months later, is a captain as a battalion XO, like legit in that role, not oh, filling right. in because everybody's gone. Right. Um, there's all these different schools you got to go to and courses to complete. You got to have, make sure you hit these right assignments and it, you know, winters wouldn't qualify, right? He did in three time, months of command time. They would say time. no. <laughs> yeah. You could even do it. Let's say you just fast tracked and did all the courses and stuff and you're still only 27 or whatever in a captain, you're not going to do it because they, they expect a certain amount of time in the slot, just of rank or in service in general. And you got to think how valuable it would be in this scenario for Colonel Singh to be able to look at captain winters and say, I've seen what you've done. I know you're capable of doing in combat. Come on up. Mm-hmm. Like how valuable is that? Instead of having to say, great job, let's get you to the career course and then to all these other courses. And then eventually we'll try to get you back here in eight or nine years. <laughs> um, well, that's leadership. That's problem yeah. solving. I don't know the right way to say this, but I feel like there's some value in a standardization. Um, but this is playing out really well. This is a good move for everybody. And yeah, it's hard yeah. to look at that and say, why can't we do that? More? Yeah. And you know what I think the value is, by the way, especially as an outsider now, but one who couldn't do it. I didn't, this was a detractor for me. It's all the moving around, but that's what makes the force healthy. In my opinion. Um, I think stagnation creates good old boy networks. And I don't think that that's good. I think it is healthy when, um, like the, the new major at the 101st, came up in let's say 
first time. Ten, you know, he did time with strikers and he was in the third ID or whatever. It's like, or just different geographies of the country that was stationed in Hawaii or just something. And he's not, and then you got to reestablish yourself every time because um, the rank doesn't make the person. Yeah. One of the interactions I like here, because I think anybody who has moved, I want to say up, but how about just moved from one position to another and had watched somebody come in and take your place has, has felt this and easy company is going to play a big role in what's called operation Pegasus. So this is pulling back some of the members of the British first airborne that were stranded when market garden failed operation Pegasus. I'm pretty sure is named because of the British first airborne mission on D-Day taking, taking Pegasus bridge. Um, Hmm. I don't know that for a fact, but it seems like too much of a coincidence. So I'm going to say they have to at least be related. I got to stop you there, by the way. I know nothing about Pegasus. I kind of forgot about this mission too, even just rewatching it. It was, to me, it's just a blip in, mm-hmm. in the series, but I paid more attention to it. And it was just, I didn't, I haven't yet, I've yet to Google it around, right? Um, but I feel like there's something interesting there that, I, that I'm not aware of. Yeah, it's cool. It's, uh, I don't know. It's a good allied moment, right? Um, 101st is going to be charged with an easy company is going to take part in, in going across the river, pulling back some of the British first airborne that have been, I mean, um, it's been over a month now that they've been in hiding with the Dutch resistance to come back into allied lines. And between the time this operation is conceived and executed is when winter's changes out of command. Right. Didn't, I didn't see a big fancy change of command ceremony, by the way. Looks like maybe a handshake and a fist bump did the trick. But uh, anyways, Moose Heiliger is his replacement. He's getting the, he comes in to just talk over it real quick. And Winter starts, like, giving details. Mm-hmm. It's tough not to do. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, not being a micromanager is important. Letting other people lead when they're in charge. Delegating is important. Uh, trusting the judgment of others. Um, and then he can't play. Fa- By the way, Battalion XO, let's explain things a little bit again. You mentioned there, I think we four companies. Well, that's true. Let's just go with four A, B, C, D. Um, well, easy. EFG. I don't know how many companies. Four. Yeah, three, three battalions, three companies each. Four companies each. Okay, four companies. That means. He's the XO of all four companies. So he winters. So he's not allowed to play. He should not be. It's not ser- well served for the other three companies. If all of his focus and attention is on what the guys in easy are doing. It's a betrayal to the battalion as a whole. It's the collective. Now he's got to go big picture. And in a sense, forget about his ties to easy because his loyalty is with battalion now. In, in a different way than it was as a part as a pawn for the battalion um it's it's just a different relationship how do you how do you handle that because you went from pl to xo to commander of the same company yeah did you feel this type of want to be a part of second platoon still and favor those it, guys i think that if i well it was easy to be chip on the shoulder with just Delta company in general to go from second to like, I got the company's back. Everybody knows me that felt organic. It would have been different had I had to go to like a, someone else went to Charlie, a different company than some, you know, he off, he, then he went to the headquarters one. Um, I don't think I would want to do that. Like I just, I feel like I got, I was fortunate to be able to do all of my time in one company. That to me was, uh, feather in my cap is how I feel about that part. I'm, I'm, I, I'm privileged to be able to stay. Um, I did want to mention though, this piece here where, um, where they are talking about the mission and there's a, there's something that I picked up on this time watching it. I haven't picked up before. And it's the nuance between Nixon and winters in the dialogue. And, and, um, we are in this transition where Winters is not with, on the line. He's now getting footlockers and sleeping again in with the battalion, which he has an orderly. And 
we can know we know that Winters already is not a guy to send his orderly to go get him coffee all the time or to wipe his ass or to shine his boots. That's not Winters doesn't even want to be the XO. Um, so it's probably weird to him. I think they don't show that, but I'm going to go with that presumption. And what do you have? Who do you have coming in, screwing with his orderly like he's a little manservant? Are the staff guys, Nixon. Go get a bacon sandwich. Um, and then let's also think about what happened while he's typing his report after that mission with Winters. And he's sitting there and he smoked. He's tired. He's out of water. Who's there to offer him a full canteen of water? Nixon. Why does he have water? Obviously, because he's not have to drink anything. Um, he's not on mission. And not only that, the guy has to smell it first to make sure there's not booze in it. <laughs> no, for real. Like, I don't even think it's a joke because he, Winters asks Nixon at the same time of this moose mission, what's the intel like? intel guy because the intel was screwed up last time and then i'm starting to see all you know and then what i'm saying is i'm starting to see this pattern of nixon it's like he is the intel guy he can't tell if there's water or booze in his canteen the intel was screwed up he's ordering the orderly around um i'm also i actually and i don't know if it was my resentment that i was feeling or winters but to me i was and then Nixon is the coward hiding his footlock, hiding his booze in the Quaker's footlocker. So it's like, and then the staff guy, and I have like, you know, I, you know, I'm a line guy myself, and that's how I view myself. And maybe it's the attitude that I started developing, just being older now, rewatching it. But I did sense that sort of watching it, where, especially with the intel, that to me, and maybe it was just the acting. I don't know. But the way Winters was asking Nixon, like, is the intel good this time? Because, you know, this is kind of like one of those submissions, too, where it's like you're not trying. At no point are you trying to lose guys. But these missions like this are a lot different than the D-Day type missions. You, you do want to manage the force well. And you don't want to do things that are arbitrary. And intel, off, I mean, that's a big part of it. That is the campaign. And that is the why. I hadn't thought of that before, but kind of seeing the split, which is understandable because you've got one guy who's been in the fight leading from the front engagement after engagement after engagement and Nix for, for uh, Nixon, right? Nixon. Mm-hmm. Like I always mess the name up. Um, office space. Yeah. Office space was, was pulled off the line early, early, early. Um, no fault of his own. It sounds like this is to me, it shows a little bit of that chance in combat, right? Chance in war, chance in the military. Um, maybe he would have been an awesome company commander. But instead, they needed him as an intel officer, infantry guy. Right. Don't forget, right. infantry guy, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, just how it shakes out. Um, but I hadn't thought of that before. I think that's a good point. W- one thing I wanted to say with this interaction between Moose and, uh, and, and Winters is I think to drive that point home of Winters recognizing you have to step back and I'm no longer running, he's no longer running the Easy Company anymore. Um, I think they had to skip a lot of parts, I imagine. This type of transition, even in World War II, wouldn't have been a high five and move on. There would have been conversations and sit the introduction to the NCOs. He's coming from a different unit. The men don't know him. There would have been some level of handing off, some level of sit down, maybe going on a mission together, maybe talking to the PLs. There would have been something more than what it appears to be, which is Winters all of a sudden just isn't there. Heiliger all of a sudden is. Right. So um, From a different company. Yeah. So From a different company that's boring. That's not going to make for good, uh, for a good series. So there's certainly some level of that. It's not as though, so when Winters is, is trying to insert himself and say, what time are you stepping off? How many boats? Um, this should be after some sort of handoff, but it's still hard. It's still hard not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's jump It's hard to armchair quarterback that, you know what I mean? Because it's just I, that I think that the COA thing is so important. Um, just the fact that it exists, the fact that they trained to get, you know, not just the Normandy. It's understandable from Normandy on, for one. It's even understandable from Market Garden on. But then you, you add in the whole Tacoa and the two and a half year type stuff beforehand. 
in that same company again it's 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 a really extraordinary situation to find oneself in in a world war next two here i'm going to kind of roll together and it's it's winter's going on r and r they decide it's time for you to take a break where they give them 48 hour pass or something go to paris um I have a couple questions for you just to get your thoughts here. One, do you think that would help? Let's go with that. Let's just start there. Do you think a little 48-hour pass by yourself in the middle of this would do the trick, would help somebody to cool down? No. I think a 48-hour reprieve from work where you can just chill and be away. Like if you just had a barracks section, even on post, I don't know where you could just get away from the unit, get away from the guys and just let your hair down for two days. Um, but exactly that setting about being around civilians or other people who aren't in it that are running their mouths, having a good old time. I think it, no, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's good. I don't like going on R and R on deployment. I like taking time off the line a little bit, but like going home and stuff, I think it really sucked in a lot of ways. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag, right? Like I was thinking about, so the, the deployment we did together was 12 months. We got two weeks of leave in the middle of it, not counting yeah. travel. And we knew it was 12 months. You know, that's the other thing. Like we kind of had a contract. Um, and we knew about our pre, we knew that we were going to have leave for whatever, two weeks in the middle of it at some point. Um, so it's, you know, just, I, I didn't know that, you know, I, I, I didn't know there was actual leave when we well, sent for soldiers. No, I, actually didn't I, I didn't know that. And they were talking about it. And I thought, what are you talking about? I, yeah, yeah. no, I actually I really did not well, know that existed. Well, everybody else did though. That's why I said that. I felt <laughs> like... But well, what I was going to say was uh, you know, everybody experiences things differently and I, I can't compare um, Afghanistan to what these guys have gone through right. even close. But for me, it took a few days to kind of decompress and then a few days to be able to enjoy being home. And then I had a few days of, oh shit, we got to go back. Um, you're kind of doing that whole goodbye thing again, which was almost harder the second time because now you know what you're going back to. Anyways, like two weeks was... I don't know if it was too long or, I mean, I, I couldn't have done that in two days to go back home, to go back around civilians for two days out of a war zone. I don't know that I would have been able to lower my blood pressure and cool it, down it, enough. It wouldn't even have been the civilians for me. If I was sitting there, I know I tell you right now, if I was sitting there and there was like military people, which I'm going to hold to a different standard. Um, and they're running our mouths and stuff, joking around, having a good old time. Like, it was just, oh, man. Oh. It would have been bad. That's all I can say. I don't, it, um, I feel like that would have been a bad thing. It just, it just, it pisses you off and, and you're just so on edge and tense. Um, tolerance for stuff like that. There's just no, your brain is just trying to react to such traumatic and harrowing things all the time. It's just, it's not easy to just shift it and shift your tone because as we were talking about when they were writing that report, at the time he's writing it, it's all normal. Um, and they're just doing their jobs. And it's really not, not in the grand scheme of things. It's not a normal thing to be doing. Um, it's not. You're trained to make it feel, trained to feel normal at the time you're doing it. So um, it just takes time to reflect like that. My second question there was, Winters is having flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. Do you think it's showing a degree of PTSD? Do you think that's partially what it's showing? I don't like labeling it because I think that who does, I mean, I think that a lot, well, I don't know. I'm saying that because that's something that isn't, because we're so focused in the series, we don't really spend much time with these guys after, right? The, the series ends, spoiler alert, sp- the series ends at the end of the war. So we don't get that piece of what these guys brought home. Little flavors here and there, but that concept of PTSD, their PTS, um, was a thing, certainly for guys that were exposed to combat like this. I'm wondering if this was trying to show that a little bit in the moment. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, I think an appropriate term for me is like the word uh, shell shock. I'm not saying me personally, but I like that descriptor. Shell shock, I think is a good descriptor. Um, and, and I think that what that is, is also triggers. That's a common word that used today is trigger. And I think it's also showing that, you know, you, and I think I'm sure you, people get triggered. I would say the Iraq guys that were on the Iraq deployments with the big IEDs beside the road on the trash piles. We've heard those stories of a trigger, especially if you were a driver all the time. And, you know, you're hearing these, those EFPs going on uh, a big, and especially in the United States, you don't see garbage along the highway. You really don't. You, you do overseas and stuff, but I can see big uh, kind of rounded, concealed uh, pile of trash bags by highway being a trigger for someone. Now, whether they react to it is a different scenario. But what I'm saying, they're just driving their camper and their RV to go out west with their family. They're driving. They were in Iraq 15 years ago, a middle-aged man or woman driving, and they see the trash bag. I, I would, I would, I would put money on that that they would that would trigger a, a memory in their mind of being in Iraq and being driving. I don't think they're going to start sweating or panicking necessarily. Some might, but I think for almost everybody. It's going to recall those memories of war and smells and sounds all, uh, you know, to me, bubble wrap popping sounds like AK fire. Now, it doesn't mean I'm taking cover. It's just it sounds like AK fire. And I wouldn't know that had I not had AKs fired at me. And so, I, you know, it's just that processing of um, and he's right off the line, too. Let's. Yeah. You know, um, but I, I don't know much of his. Uh, dad time his grandpa time later you know um fatherhood i'm not good at uh figuring out like deeper motives in movies and books like i was in high school and college when it was what's the deeper meaning behind this like i don't know surface level is about as far as i can go so this is maybe me reading too far into something when i'm not qualified to do that but it it it, it looks to be or at least the way I interpret it is showing that this shock, flashbacks, PTS, whatever we want to decide that it sounds like can happen to anybody for any reason, right? Winters has done a lot by this point. He's seen a lot and it keeps recalling this one thing um, or it's what it's showing at least. And he seems to be fine until he gets out. And I mean, it's just, which is, which, to me, the story there is everybody is impacted differently by everything. There's and people. There's people who saw more forever. Sorry, but like he shot a boy, and I think that that screwed with him too, because he saw the boy, and that mess. I mean, that will get you too. The kids that get killed in warfare, and um, that's not supposed to happen. So. And if these are Polish people, who know? They were tricked into it. We don't know. I don't know what they knew back then either, by the way. But it probably mattered that he wasn't a German. And it probably mattered that it was not an 18, you know, it was like a 15-year-old. What do you mean not a German? You're talking about the kid? The SS guys were Polish. Conscripts. Nah, I'm not sure that's... They, they say that at one point, but that also would have been something people would have been quick to say to... The, the the SS was about 50% uh, foreign. Well, that's what I'm, basically what I'm reading. Gotcha. But then again, he was SS, and so probably didn't, I don't know. But I guess to me, again, just reading as a, or just watching it as a, as a viewer, as a consumer, um, the art of it, or what, what were they trying to tell us, the context? I was thinking it was the trigger of seeing the boy, the French boy, and then... The other guy would just happen to be wearing the uniform and, you know, winners totally killed him. The guy had nothing in his, they describe it more in the book. I wish I had the book with me. I do know. I mean, winners remembers that moment very, very well. Maybe that's, that's it. what they're talking about in the, you know, he just, uh, he carries that. I'm pretty sure that he carried that berm with him for his whole life. Um, that was a big moment in his life. I think more, I think it probably, again, I have no idea. I am just guessing, but I have the feeling that that carries more weight than let's just say taking that. We might put all the taking the guns and the D-Day and those are like the winner stories 
but maybe for him, he was in adrenaline mode and it just probably forgets a lot of it because he was on go, 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 go mode. This was more intentional. This was a pause. This was a guy eating his lunch type situation. He didn't even have to shave and winners consciously, um, you know, killed him right there on the spot. So leading the part of it. I think part of that might also be in combat. There's so many times where you can write it off and say the whole platoon is shooting. Right. I don't know. I think I hit the guy or you call in an artillery strike and say, listen, we also dropped bombs. I didn't call that strike. And there were machine guns and who knows, right? You can, if you want to justify it or write it off and say, there's what's the old um, in firing squads when they would give one person a blank. Right. Mm-hmm. So everybody could say I wasn't actually the one that shot him. Um, but then there's the other side of it, like right now with Winters, where he's the only one on the berm. Nobody else is shooting. He's the only one to fire and he shoots that guy and kills him. There's no walking away from that. Right. There's no denying. There's no, well, maybe somebody else got the jump on me or something. So, right. And I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's a bayonet charge, too. Well, let's jump into. Uh, Right at the end of the episode here, they get the call. The American lines are being overrun. This is the Battle of the Bulge, the Battle of the Ardennes. Um, it's kind of Germany's last ditch effort to try to win the war. It's kind of a heated topic. We'll get into, there, I've got some episodes talking about that outside of this show, but or outside of this Band of Brothers series. But anyways, they start calling units up to plug the lines. 101st gets the call. They're riding these trucks to get to the front. And it kind of shows, I think, a good job of when we look at a map, we say, well, these guys moved from here to here, but the reality is it was slow and mm-hmm. arduous and cold and it was coordinated and well done, but it takes a while to actually plug those gaps. Anyways, the point I want to hit on is they pull up to Bastogne, they get out, and the first thing that happens is Lieutenant Dyke, the new easy company commander, because Moose Heiliger was shot and wounded, comes up and says, can you believe our commander's not here? Can you believe it? What's what are we going to do? Commander's not here. And he just gets kind of a tap on the forehead by Winters. Worry about what you can handle, right? That, yeah. Worry, uh, worry about what you can handle. Um, there's also part of it is what it is. Um, work with what you got. I like the quote at the end, uh, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. You know, like, and that's like, then you think about it, it's like, wait, that's actually totally true. They're supposed (laughs) to be dropped in behind enemy lines. And if you're behind enemy lines, what does that mean? (laughs) Uh, And it wasn't gusto, of course. It wasn't arrogance, of course. Um, But it was like, that's what we're here for, right? Isn't that why we're here? Um, They're all triple volunteers for it or whatever. yeah, and I don't know the immediacy. What I would like to know, uh, yeah, what was the time frame between the movie and then the Jimmy Fallon unloading ammo to everybody? Uh, it seems like it was like QRF. Get it on, go. We're doing a ruck march into the into the woods. It was uh, quick. The entire Battle of the Bulge wasn't long. I mean, it was it was pretty quick. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know about a couple hours, but but days. You know. I do now. I will say, I'll go personal here. I do feel like that was kind of how I felt. Not they're different. They're different. Not saying it's the same thing. But when we showed up to our area, and the people that were, let's say, coming out or just have been operating in that area, and even special operations people talking to us when they're trying to give us the intel and lay of the land, there was a look on their face like, "I'm glad." I felt like I had. They were looking at me like, I'm glad I'm not you because it's really bad out there. You know what I mean? It wasn't very inspiring. It wasn't very motivating. Um, It was like that the people coming back from it were like, this is not a good place. It's not a good place. Really bad things happen. (laughs) Really, you know, you really need to be on top of your game here. Um, That really made me think about that when I was just that sort of added the, the crossing of the people and that's a, a you know a question i had there is and then everybody can answer this differently but when these guys jumped into normandy it was an unknown yeah 
I mean, you generally knew what you were going to be up against, but were you going to land in the middle of a town? Were you going to land in a perfect formation with your squad and be able to carry on the objective? Were the Germans going to run? Were they going to fight? Were there going to be panzers? You had no idea. It was kind of an unknown. These guys are walking into an area with people coming out saying, Germans overran us. They're coming, there's tanks, armored vehicles, artillery from every direction. I don't know which one you'd rather hear. On top of the fact, like we did get the assets, by the way. On top of the fact, yeah, these guys have no, they don't have the equipment to fight. Like personal gear and bullets. Both. That's the XO's fault. <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> that's a good lead in, man. That's uh so that's gonna wrap up episode five, crossroads. But coming up next, getting into that nasty fight, nasty conditions, colder than I ever want to be, is episode six called Bastone. And that's next time on War Stories. All righty. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.